Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Sit back, relax, unless you're driving. It's Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com, episode 100. 140 mark, June the 12th, 2020. And I saw a picture, a selfie. You've sent me a selfie, haven't you, Mark? So you've been out and about. Tell me the crazy thing you did um, <laughs> this morning. And um, you you're a little bit um, restless last night, so you got up very early to head out into the bush. I do I do tend to do this quite regularly, get up at, um, I don't know, five um, while it's still dark, get, get rugged up and go out and try and catch the morning chorus, listen to the birds as they call in first thing in the morning. Um, so, yeah, and it was um, it's a beautiful – it was cold. It was very cold up here this morning, Brendan. Um, it was uh, – it, it was it was when I headed out about uh, a little bit after five. It was um, zero degrees, the big naught, zero degrees Celsius, whatever that is in Fahrenheit. Um, so I was completely rugged up. Had my beanie on. I think did it. Did, I think the photo I sent you had. I was wearing my beanie. You were you were wearing your beanie. And speaking of beanies, I did I show you that beanie as I was given to me by my uh, one of my clients um, a while ago. Um, you mentioned it, but no, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I have to take a selfie and send it to you. It was, um, and she, when I put it on, she broke out to hysterical laughter. <laughs> <laughs> and then she said, oh, I didn't realise your head was that big. <laughs> um, and and uh, I think it had a little knob on the top of it. It looked, it looked like Noddy um, from the old, remember Noddy, the old um, 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 little um, cartoon or whatever. And um, she did say she was going to knit me one slightly bigger. Um, so I didn't know what to say about that. And um, and funny you should mention beanies again, part two, this morning um, when we had um, – my brother-in-law and his lovely wife and his son around. Um, since the restrictions have been eased, we could have, what is it, five people or ten people um, for Sophie's birthday. Um, and we just had a morning tea or a, a, a little um, brunch at our place a couple of days ago. And um, Brenda, my sister-in-law, had said, um, and I, for some reason we mentioned about beanies and she said, oh, I could, and I said, oh, could you, because she's a very good knitter and, and she said, oh, um, I'll knit, knit you one. Um, and I said, oh, that'd be nice. Yeah, I'd enjoy that. And for some reason this morning I, I said, said to Annie, I'll send her a um, text and the text I sent her was, um, it's a bit cold here and it was about zero degrees here too, Mark. It's a bit cold here. Um, how's my beanie <laughs> coming along? Um, I haven't heard back from her since. I think she's, <laughs> I think she's a, a bit worried that, I, um, that I'm um, – and she, she'll be stressing out. So I'll send her a, 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 another text after this um, recording, Mark, to say I was only joking. Don't worry if you'd forgotten about it. Um, yes. But beanies become more important, like um, my receding hairline – um, exposes me to the vagaries of the weather much more um, than when I was young and fully furred. 
and they're very protective too, aren't they? If you if you're out in the bush there and you're whacking your head against you know twigs and tree branches and that, um, yeah, it helps protect your noggin, doesn't it? <laughs> um, having a beanie on, so no, they're they're good. I like a good beanie, Mark. I have a little bit of a collection of, um, well, probably only three or four of them, but yeah, they're good. So I'll let you know and I'll send you a pic if I end up getting. Brenda's beanie for Brendan, um, and um, I'll I'll send you a picture of it. Yes, so yes, I must get out early as well. Yes, and um, commune with nature. Um, it's always a bit of a struggle getting out of a nice warm bed, isn't it, to get up? But you never regret it, or I certainly don't. If you I do, ever get out, you do never regret it. It is hard, and it is lovely to be nice and warm. But um, I don't know the Karawongs calling in the winter and. Yeah, just the uh, smell of the um, the forest, it, it is soothing. So what's your um, first news story, Brendan? Well, yes, I've got a very quick one here. A new farm sus- subsidy scheme is declared a win for wildlife, and this was in the UK. And um, the reason why it piqued my interest, it was a two-year two year pilot study carried out on farms in Norfolk, Suffolk and Yorkshire, and the trial was co-founded by the European Commission and it was that the beauty of this study, I think, was unlike current agri-environment schemes where payments are fixed and land management techniques prescribed, basically the payments by results pilot gave the farmers freedom to choose how they manage their land to improve biodiversity. So they gave them some money and said, do with it what you will to try and improve your land to help wildlife. And guess what? Let people do things um, that they think is appropriate. And the farms had a 43% more seed-bearing plants and nearby sites that claim existing subsidies. So it works, Mark. Um, So they were struck by the resourcefulness resourcefulness and the passion the pilot provided, according to Tony. Well, it sort of makes intuitive sense, doesn't it, that if they're invested, if they have a, um, uh, you know, it's their idea, um, they're going to be more passionate and committed to it. So I sort of see the logic. And I do think the other thing I like about this too, Brendan, is that I think um, uh, one of the – and look, I I would – the people on the land, not universally, but very, very often have a, um, you know, have a, uh, uh, an understanding that can be tapped into that may not necessarily be recorded in the ecological journals or, you know, um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to, to uh, utilise that um, connection to country. And I think it's a, it's a trust thing, isn't it? That you know, you trust in them, give them some money, and trust them to say, "Look, they, it's good for them, it's good for the environment," because they realise that it'll help their farm as well, and um, it's a good thing. So that's my story, Mark. There it is. A nice it's out up, there. Up. It's on vetgurus.com. Well, I, one read. I've got um, a pretty quick one as well, Brendan. Mine, mine is um, uh, one of the fascinating times in uh, human evolution for me is the whole um, dog domestication uh, process. Um, it's widely accepted that dogs were the first animal to become domesticated. Um, and um, there now is some uh, research in the Journal of Archaeological Science um, which suggests which uh, looks at dental microware um, on fossils um, from um, a pre-demosti site, um, uh, um, 
uh, and uh, the the teeth have little grooves on them. Um, and they've the researchers have divided them up into um, proto dogs and proto or um, um, proto dogs and wolf like canids. And what they found was that the um, the dog the dogs had bigger grooves indicating a diet that included hard brittle food um so i think this is um i'm always fascinated with these uh deductions brendan from from uh you know something as trivial as the size of the grooves on uh, on the on the wear of um teeth fossilized teeth um the researchers are inferring the First of all, the diet um, that um, what the word they use durafagi, more hard stuff in the diet, um, whereas the wild wolves probably ate, they presume ate more um, meat off animals that they killed rather than scraps uh, from human fires, um, which would have been smaller and more bony and uh, um, possibly more hard work. So, but it, it's an interesting. De- that's the thing that struck me about this, that with from very, very, um, you know, minute bits of data, they've, um, they've uh, formed a whole theory about uh, um, when uh, these fossils between 15 and 40,000 years might have represented um, during the Ice Age the first uh, time that um, dogs became companions for humans, Brendan. Always thinking, Mark. That's what you've got to be doing. Always thinking, as they say in classics. <laughs> um, yes, and um, the other, my only other comment about that article was um, the the paragraph talking about there's robust scientific debate about the timing and circumstances of the initial domestication of dogs. In other words, they all get together and argue uh, about <laughs> when or where it happened. And um, I want to be a distinguished professor of anthropology as well um, which is um, the title of the person who published this art peter unger um, it's a it's a nice title isn't it a distinguished, distinguished professor. professor not just a professor but a distinguished professor yes. um, i think we're getting a little bit more distinguished don't aren't we as we age mate that's what our wives tell us um, but I, I think it's in a slightly different direction um, than <laughs> The professorial um, distinction. Um, yes, good good article, Mark. And yes, both articles, as usual, vetgurus.com, the place to go. So, yeah, let's jump into our – We again, we don't have a review, but we might have one next week, Mark. Um, our main topic, um, and this is one that's been requested – by at least one person. <laughs> um, a bit of a pause there. Um, basic snake care. Um, and I think it's a good one for, for veterinarians and um, veterinary staff. Um, and it's also a good summary for, for our clients, our new clients, Mark, um, about how to care for snakes. Um, and we're going to rip through the basics of, of caring for snakes and, and the major points and tips and tricks of it. And um, for those of you who are new to our podcast, go through our archives and we certainly have some more detailed podcasts on things like UV lighting and um, cleaning and uh, environmental enrichment for reptiles, which dig deeper into some of these aspects. But this one's a bit of a... A basic overview, isn't it, Mark, um, about um, looking after snakes and we'll stick to snake care um, and we'll 
we're slowly getting through some of the commonly kept species of reptiles. Um, this one's a, a, a lot of species. <laughs> you're getting through them because you're bunching them all together. But I think it's a really yeah. good topic to, like, um, I love the fact that we sometimes talk about, you know, complex niche topics but i also think it's great to um to canvas these sort of topics and and the other thing that's great about it is that um it is often so many of the health issues we see with snakes when they're sick are directly related to this husbandry so um so it's a great topic to get under our belt so what species do you consider in your practice relatively easy ones to keep and which ones are more difficult, Brendan? God, that's a tricky one, isn't it, Mark? And it's obviously going to be region-specific as well, depending on what region of the world you are in and what species are available legally. Um, We won't talk about the illegal ones. Um, Yeah, so for me, um, the ones that I find that people seem to cope with better as as far as the basic sort of um, first pet or first snake and, and usually I recommend to clients I'm off topic already is to perhaps <laughs> not go for a snake um, as their first reptile and maybe consider one of the one of the lizards mark um, um, so apart from that comment that um, sort of prelude to it um, the the carpet pythons or the children's pythons um, um, uh, uh, lumping them into um, a big <laughs> A big number of species there are the ones that I'd probably be recommending. Um, the ones I don't want people to go for are the ones that I've have had, I was going to say crazy clients, but um, some clients who probably didn't make the best decision um, as far as their first reptile. And I've had some clients who have chosen their first ever reptile being a venomous reptile. Oh, no. Species like a tiger snake is their first ever, ever snake to get. And that's probably not... Not an appropriate decision there. It, 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 maybe it is if we consider um, um, natural selection. Um, <laughs> the Darwin Awards. Of, yes, um, with it. Um, and, and some of the uh, more difficult ones, I think, are that the, some of the sort of rainforest species can be quite tricky. Um, the um, um, Some of the more aggressive um, snakes like the um, – I've gone blank here – the, 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 the um, the ones that we see naturally in Queensland, you can help me out. Carpet, here, Mark. The jungle, jungle carpet, carpet pythons, yeah. even though I, I, I lump carpal pythons into um, ones that may be easy to, easy to keep, like our northwestern, etc., or coastal carpets, Mark. Probably well, it is. It, it's an interesting thing that um, uh, some, sometimes the ones that appear more commonly are not necessarily easier to keep, and um, we do break the carpet pythons up into the the diamond python which i find um regularly has a lot of problems in in captive care but because they occur in areas where the population uh, centers are they they're commonly kept as pets um the coastal carpet along eastern queensland is also a relatively robust species but as you get further north amongst you know the the jungles um the the darwin uh, variety tends to be a bit snappy as well, but um, it's domesticated down, and there's a lot of we see an awful lot of um, the albino Darwins now, and and those snakes are much more placid than their wild antecedents. But the take home message is that there is a variety, and um, and it is good to have a talk to someone about um, about the particular if it's your first snake, 
which one might be good. And you mentioned the Antaresia, the children's and uh, spotted pythons. They are, I reckon, um, the size uh, um, advantage of those guys. They don't get to be four, six, yes. eight feet. Um, and so you don't have to commit a huge enclosure. And, and obviously everything about a snake that's six or seven feet long is big. It's big, Brendan. Whereas the, the those um, uh, children's and spotted pythons only get to um, a metre, three foot or so, and and they are um, uh, equally easy to keep in my experience. Well, I think, as usual, we're in agreement there. But <laughs> I, I think the other big factor, especially if you're not used to dealing with reptiles as a clinician or, or a veterinary nurse is to also assess the client. Are they the right person to have a reptile? Um, so it's matching the pet with, with the client as well. Um, that's always a tricky one if it is a new client. If it's an old client who who's had their dog um, come into your practice for years and then they decide to get a reptile then it's a, then it's a lot easier to try and help with that decision there but some people are just not made out for particular species are they Mark? That's so true Brendan um, the, and and um, the other thing I was going to mention about different species is that um, the more desirable ones like the green tree pythons those sorts of things they they are harder to keep and and, um, and it is good for people to start with the ones that are a little bit easier. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about the basics, Mark. Do you want to talk about the In um, one of the first things? One of the first things they talk, um, they ask you, the client, um, um, is how do I? What sort of enclosure do I get? What's the basics of setting up an enclosure? Let's let's go through those, the important steps and the things to consider. Well, the most important thing I reckon is not is definitely not to buy one of those all-glass things. If you talk to someone at a pet store, then they will. There's a number of different brands of um, of glass, entirely glass enclosures, maybe with a metal grate on top. Um, they are th not thermally appropriate, Brendan. Um, they, the enclosure needs to be closed on, you know, if it's a... Um, some form of rectangular prism, a, a cupboard type arrangement. It needs to be um, uh, timber or um, maybe fiberglass on um, on five sides with a glass front. Um, those all glass ones, uh, first of all, as I said before, not suitable uh, to establish an appropriate thermal gradient. And they also make snake... One of the things about snakes in captivity is that even when they appear relaxed, if they're exposed, they're stressed. Um, and so to have an all-glass thing and and be exposed on all sides um, is very stressful for these snakes. So um, an enclosure that's uh, um, uh, uh, um, covered, or uh, what's the right word, um, um, uh, not transparent. Opaque. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> we're, we're both having trouble with our words this yeah. particular episode. Um, but, um, yes, so that the, the snake has one direction where uh, the glass allows them to see out and they feel like they're in a bit of a cave and concealed, um, that uh, helps. And of yes, course, and that... And that temperature gradient that that temperature loss rapid temperature loss or gain with those all glass or perspex enclosures can be so dramatic can't it and a lot of people like to keep their reptile or put their reptile enclosures 
near a window in a bedroom or a lounge room, etc., a living room, for example, and then it would just amplify those those um, changes in the temperature there um, with them. And speaking of temperature, we did we 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 like to mention to the client um, having that temperature gradient and getting across to them the whole concept of having a warm end and a cooler end um, for the reptile, so that reptile can thermoregulate. Isn't that is that um, is that how you go about it? With um, mention it to the um, or, or or educating your clients, Mark. Definitely, and um, the other thing, it is critically important to explain that there's a you know a, a, um, a warm you know a spot underneath the 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 um, heat lamp that um, is warm and above the the preferred temperature for that species and then a, a gradient away. And in that gradient, and obviously at the cool end, it's below the preferred body temperature, but there needs to be a few shelters, a few hides in that um in that gradient. So because this particularly young snakes will not um thermoregulate well if they can't sort of be hidden and um, stay in that spot so not just having a gradient but a number of um of uh refuges microclimates isn't oh. it? it's it's given them the chance to to have a hide that might be a bit warmer than the other hide up the up the cooler end of exactly. the enclosure and, and and perhaps a an area that's raised off the ground with a bit of a hide rather than just a hot one hide on the ground there so it's it's like the actual temperature gradient giving the reptile the option to select from a number of different areas that it feels comfortable in that enclosure, in that vivarium there um, and same story with the lighting mark um we and and my 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 one minute sort of recommendation to clients or, or, or the way I try and get across to the fact that we 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 want light in is um all animals um need day, a daytime and a night time and having a light on all the time is a form of torture, the same as having a light no light at all um twenty four seven. So they need a white light um that is turned on during um, daytime so when the sun comes up we can go with the seasons um that the light comes on and the sun goes off when the when it is dusk mark um and added to that we do want to provide um some uv light for the reptile and again i say to clients that all animals need uv light or at least the opportunity to be exposed to uv light and in reptiles it's it's uvb and these days there there are a large number of um, reptile-specific um, lights um, from the fluorescent-type ones to, to more specific um, lights that um, provide UV output. And we do have a podcast, don't we, Mark, that deals specifically a previous episode with, with UV lighting with them. But um, getting back to the basics, I just tell the clients that they need a, they need to have um, exposure to a white light. It comes on in the morning, goes off at night, um, and we need to provide UV light. Um, also... Um, an important factor with the UV lighting is um, the reptiles will not absorb the UV um, as well if they're cold. So you need to have um, the UV light over an area where it is a warmer part of the enclosure, or at least the reptile can access the UV light when it's warmed up as well. Um, anything to add to that one? No, no, you've summed it up really well. But I think the key thing that um, and I often find trying to keep it simple with uh, these introductory discussions with clients because they do sometimes think oh, i'll just get a heat lamp in one corner a ceramic globe or whatever and that'll be it and as you've highlighted it is more complex and nuanced and a heat lamp 
a white light and an ultraviolet light, uh, um, uh, uh, and certainly the white light and ultraviolet light can be combined in the one tube, but those sources all need to be available for the snake. And I think the the, the other difficulty there is a lot of people like that they, they buy these animals because they like to look at them and they like to to handle them, um, and and that's another topic in itself, isn't it? Um, so they put the enclosures fairly frequently. They might be placed in an area of high traffic and it might be the kitchen, the, the dining room, the lounge room. And if it's a if it's a household with, with numerous people in there, then the lights may be on 24-7 and, and the animal isn't getting proper proper cycles, um, a diurnal sort of cycle there. So um, they need to factor that in there. And that may maybe then doing something simple like um, draping over um, a, 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 um, a bl- blanket, a shroud. There's another good <laughs> a good word there, Mark, a shroud over the enclosure. Um, nothing beats a good shroud, does it, Mark? Do you take a shroud when you're out bird watching? <laughs> definitely, definitely a uh, shroud um, with, um, with uh, camouflage Camo. arrays. <laughs> You are full on with it, aren't you? Um, yes. So putting a shroud over there um, at at um, at night so they don't get disturbed, and and um, I think it is a, a a common problem in 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 all of our um, pet species that that we're upsetting the natural rhythms um, and um, stressing them out um, by by not providing you know a daytime and a nighttime for them. Um, furniture. What about cleaning, Mark? We we sort of spoke about furniture, and and I think we'll point out listeners to the other um, podcast about environmental enrichment and all the things we can do there as far as um, making that reptile enclosure, that, that snake enclosure, fun for the snake, Mark. Um, what's your basics of cleaning? How often and, and what with? What sort of things do we do and use? Well, um, this is a good point because we, um, well, um, we can um, mention one of our wonderful sponsors. But um, uh, the key thing is... Um, uh, not to leave um, uh, droppings in the enclosure. Um, they will provide a, an opportunity for um, organic material to survive and um, and uh, pathogens of one sort or another to survive in there. Um, and, uh, and and if droppings are left in the substrate or on uh, on surfaces, um, they can um, provide a uh, you know, a, a, an agent, um, the the pH of the urates and the faecal contamination can lead to skin conditions. So cleaning very regularly, as soon as the droppings are present, they've got to go out and no less frequently than uh, weekly um, should the enclosures be cleaned. Um, and that means physically removing the droppings, um, uh, tidying the substrate, Um I would say that not every week would we have to um, uh, apply the wonderful F10 product to the enclosure, but um, at least four times a year I would uh, strip the enclosure down, um, uh, remove any damaged or soiled furniture and replace it with fresh stuff and anything that um, needed to be cleaned, the surfaces inside the enclosure, the glass, the the um, uh, the, the walls, um, I would clean them um, with F10 and observe. One of the things I often emphasise is um, the time that needs to, you know, the, the people often just wipe 
whatever antiseptic they're using, um, F10 being best amongst them, um, they don't leave it for the appropriate um, exposure time. Um, and that's a critical step to do. Yep. Good. And I think, yeah, that's a perfect summary there, Mark. Perfect <laughs> summary. So we have our snake. What do we recommend to our clients as far as feeding, um, how often? What do we recommend for feeding? What's well? Isn't this some of the this is a controversial topic as well? Because um, uh, a lot of herpetoculturists will feed very frequently. There's that whole thing about um, shortening the generation interval and obtaining, you know, particular color varieties and and selecting them more quickly, shortening that generation interval. But I'm a big fan of um, of uh, not feeding snakes a whole lot. Um, I know that if you were to feed them like, you know, twice a week, um, a large priodum, they would, uh, they would uh, do, they would continue to eat. Um, they have evolved to be opportunistic and, um, and they may well not eat for many months. So when there's two or three males quickly available, they'll take it in the wild. But if that goes on and on, they will not live a long life. They will develop diseases like hepatic lipidosis um, and, um, and, uh, and potentially um, have problems with some, um, you know, uh, high body weight and uh, um, issues with their skeleton and the way that develops. So I think I tend to, it's an interesting thing to think about how frequently they eat in the wild. I did read an ecological study about um, large uh, black-headed pythons in the far northwest of Australia. And those snakes uh, would regularly, for many years on end, um, only eat three times a year. Um, so I, my suggestion to our clients is a relatively small prey item uh, for an adult, you know, for one of the larger pythons, um, uh, once every two weeks, no more frequently than once every two weeks. Um, and, uh, and the other thing is that it's, I don't know about you, Brendan, but a lot of the snakes we get to see are overweight. Yep. The big fat slobs. <laughs> That's what I say to my clients, or not to my clients, sorry, to, to, to my clients about their pets. Um, they are overfed, as you've mentioned, um, and they're not doing any work for it. So what, what they're sitting in, even if they're in a six-foot vivarium, which is a big vivarium um, for my, um, very few clients will have a vivarium of six-foot um, width, um, they're still not working like uh, like they would in the wild, um, as you mentioned. So they're not, not spending a lot of time and effort trying to catch a mammal that's wandering past or, or ambush a mammal and um, exercising um, and spending time doing that. And so what do we do? We have these big fat slobs that are just sitting there and they're fed every one to two weeks or so. And these days I tend to recommend to the clients with those commonly kept adult snakes um, to feed them a bare minimum every two weeks but I'm, I'm tending to recommend that they feed them every three or four weeks um, as so you know once a month um, it, it's probably more like it and as you mentioned with some of those studies some of these animals out in the wild um, would be eating even much less frequently than that and the other final point that I mentioned to clients is we're not feeding them a scrawny little wild um, um, marsupial or feral rat. They're eating um, big, fat laboratory rats yes. or mice. 
So feed less often and um, be um, um, keep them keep them lean, keep them mean. <laughs> I, I did. A, 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 um, I talked to some researchers who were um, same deal. The people who were doing that study on the the um, the wild black-headed pythons they collected several hundred um, snakes, roadkill snakes, and um, and uh, uh, various other snakes for morphometric analysis. The heaviest wild snake. Um, that was uh, nearly nine feet long, was 2.2 kilos, a black-headed python. I regularly see um, black-headed pythons over eight kilos, four times the heaviest wild one that um, that these yep. people recorded. Um, and there's no doubt that, you know, shortens their life when they're four times the weight they've, uh, they're supposed to be in the wild. And the difficulty there is that it's we, we don't have the same... Um, little charts we can show the client about um, condition scoring that we would say in a dog or a cat and feel for the ribs and the waist and all that sort of thing. Um, the important factor being that the the internal fat stores are exactly that in, in these snakes and reptiles are intrasolomic. They're not subcutaneous. They don't get a pot belly. Um, and when you do a necropsy on any snake, um, even ones that look lean, it's amazing, isn't it, Mark, that the that the fat bodies have virtually the whole length of the snake there. So, you know, it's that adaption to the fact that they may only manage to get a feed very infrequently so they're very efficient at storing um, what what feed that they do get. So I think it's really important that we um, stress the feeding aspect to clients there, Mark. So preventative health. So what do we tell that client um, about, um, you know, vet checks and what sort of basic tests do we um, suggest that they um, perform and how often do they come back in for a bit of a a check on their snake mark. Well, we definitely uh, send out um, uh, reminders for annual examinations. Um, and I, I, I've got to admit, Brendan, when I first started doing this, I, I, in the way of veterinarians, I was a little bit self-deprecating, and and you know, I thought, oh, what am I going to be able to see in a snake that um, an experienced herper is not going to be able to see? Um, but it, it, I. I've learned over the years that um, even people that spend a lot of time with their snakes don't necessarily pick up on the the things that we do in physical examinations. And so I feel completely justified in um, suggesting to people that they come in at least annually for us to uh, do a good thorough physical exam on their snake. Um, and... Uh, I do think at the same time it's wise for us to get a stool sample that contains both both feces and urates and for us to um, examine that. Um, a lot of captive bred snakes should not um, demonstrate any parasites. You would think that um, they're, they're uh, relatively insulated um, incubation and then uh, rearing would render them... Um, you know, uh, effectively isolated from parasites. But it's still surprising how often we find um, uh, um, protozoal parasites or uh, even um, uh, um, roundworms in some of the snakes that experience some time in an aviary outside. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I clearly having a look at the stools at the time we do their annual exam. Do you draw blood from any of your snakes as a preventative health care process? We, I introduced the topic fairly early on. So say if they've purchased a 
you know, a, a, a one-year-old young um, sub-adult snake, um, I'll, I'll say, look, when your snake gets to about three or four, we'll start thinking about doing a blood screen. And the way I recommend it and the reason why I think it's worthwhile is that I, I, we don't have the tens and tens of thousands of, of, of reference values, normal values or whatever you want to call them for, um, even the commonly kept species. So we then have a baseline for that individual and it's always best to get a baseline for that individual um, for when, hopefully it doesn't, when it becomes unwell that we have that to look back on, Mark. And um, it is amazing how, how some of them we do pick up some issues even at that age um, with them by doing that general blood screen. So that's that's the way I sort of... Um, um, explain it to the clients that I think it's worthwhile doing and it's equivalent of, you know, doing bloods. Well, I get bloods take pulled every every year from me, Mark. Um, I don't know whether you do from your GP, but um, he likes to poke and prod <laughs> every year for me. Um, to Perhaps it's our age, I'd expect so, um, and, and doing those general bloods, even though there's only some slight changes there, he likes to do it um, every year. So so that's how I promote it to the clients, and I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. What, at what age do you start recommending full bloods or, or a general blood screen? Well, I, I'm i probably guilty of not doing it nearly enough in um, as part of our routine healthcare. We, we regularly um, look at bloods when we have animals that are ill when we have snakes that are ill um, but obviously we don't have the advantage of their numbers and and because we don't have that huge bank of um, of data to develop normals um, and because those normals vary depending on the reproductive cycle of the animal um, having some actual numbers from those animals is obviously a useful thing I think I'm going to institute the the uh, the four-year rule Brendan um, and I like the idea of warming people up to it. I know that if you walk in at one year and go, they need a blood test now, today, right now, many people will go, oh, back off from that. Whereas um, if you do it the first year, the second year, the third year, they've, they've warmed to the idea by the time they're four years old and um, they're almost expecting you to draw that blood. Yes. Okay, what else do we want to quickly run through? Um, well, I suppose that... We won't talk about the specific illnesses, but um, the signs that um, snakes, especially, um, well, not just new owners of, of reptiles, but um, the signs of illness that we see. Well, I think, uh, and it's a good thing too, because um, they are the things that, you know, uh, new snake owners won't know and they will phone up and they'll go, oh, my snake is uh, not uh, having a go at its food, it's it's eaten really well. It seems to be anorexic now. Um, and what might um, what might the staff that answer the phone, what might their next inquiry be? Um, they're good things to ask. What so? What would your staff say, Brendan? If if a client phones up and goes, "Oh, my snake has eaten well once every two weeks, once a month, like you said, and just now it's it's it doesn't want to eat." It's well. It's the same reply. Forgetting about the the reason why they phoned up, it it should be the same reply. If you're worried about your animal, regardless of whether it's a reptile or a dog or a cat or a giraffe, um, to phone up, then um, bring it in and we'll have a look at it. Um, because I think it's we we, we underestimate even with new owners um, how 
good they are at picking up some nuances um, with them. Yeah, it might be the obvious, my snake hasn't eaten for six months. <laughs> um, perhaps I should have it looked at. But um, if they're worried, then there's, there's, I think there's always, there's, a, there's rarely an exception where there isn't something that we can um, educate them on or at least provide advice on preventative health with that animal, even if it was a snake that they said it missed one feed. Um and um, we get them in and we, 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 we tweak um, their environmental enrichment or, or the other aspects of their, their setup that need um, fixing. So we use it as a, as a way to, you know, go over and, and, and really concentrate on the preventative health with them, yeah. Good but, tip, you know, because the, the, I think the key thing there too is that by the time, even for clients that are sensitive to nuance, by the time they see something you know, is out of the ordinary, very often there's something really wrong. So um, holding off and, and, you know, getting them to watch for a week or try again um, can often let a problem develop, and you are quite correct. I reckon each of those phone calls should generate a consult. Yes, and, um, yeah, it is one of the common, if we just briefly, before we finish, mention some of the common presenting signs or the reasons why clients phone up with their snake that they consider it unwell. Anorexia is certainly very high on the list, so my snake has not eaten for X number of days, weeks, months, years. Um, <laughs> my snake is lethar- behaving differently, so it's lethargic. It, it used to you know, um, sit on its little heat, hot area and a common a common presenting sign for an unwell snake is that it will end up going into the cooler end and, and seeking out the coolest area of the enclosure rather than what we would want to do with a an animal that's unwell, a reptile that's unwell, we want to warm them up. So um, it's it's not doing what it normally does um, as far as it's the way it's coiling, the where it's sitting, which hide it's going in. It's something not quite right with them with it. Um, constipation or obstipation, and we covered that um, in a in a recent podcast there, Mark. Um, um, obvious ones are things like wounds and lesions, and they can get into a bit of mischief, can't they, with trying to escape or to um, trying to crawl into the heat elements or the um, lighting elements, etc. Um, and the other big one, which is probably a bit of a more specific one for reptiles and snakes in particular, isn't it, isn't it Mark? It's lumps. Is my snake has a lump? How commonly do you have that as a question or a, or a comment or a, or a presenting sign? Very, very commonly, um, and um, and and it would be, well, I suppose it sort of makes sense. They're long tubular things, and almost everything that goes wrong—an abscess or a, a tumor—is um, going to make a lump, um, and so it is a very common presenting problem. Yes. And that's another podcast we should do, Mark, Lumps in Snakes and the Differential um, Diagnosis of it. Yes. We will cover that. Well, I think, gee, we ran that. We ran through that what I thought was pretty quick, but we still ended up um, doing our usual and going a bit over over the time of what we wanted it to be, but that's okay. Um, we will leave you to it and we will talk to you all next week. Vetgurus.com. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. 
Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.